Welcome to this week's Rumination from Pardis podcast. This week it's Rumination 17. Exactly what are the Ten Words, or what some people call the Ten Commandments. Everyone seems to know about a portion of scripture they call the Ten Commandments. They are written on tablets of stone, and they supposedly represent the baseline of morality for two religions, Judaism and Christianity. But, what exactly are they? First, they are never called the Ten Commandments in Scripture. It is quite odd that they ever earned this name. They are listed in Exodus 20, 2-17, and Deuteronomy 5, 6-21. They are called the Ten Words. In Exodus 34, 28, Deuteronomy 4.13, and Deuteronomy 10.4. It is from these three passages that they earn their title. In Hebrew, they are called Aseret HaDevarim, the Ten Words. In the Greek Septuagint, they are Decalogos, Ten Words. In the Latin Vulgate, they are Verba Decem, Ten Words. So how did they earn the English name, the Ten Commandments? The Wycliffe Bible, one of the earliest English Bibles, 1395 CE, translated Aseret HaDevarim as ten words. The Coverdale Bible, 1535 CE, translates the phrase as ten verses. Virtually every English Bible from that time on has translated the phrase as ten commandments. So what happened between the Wycliffe translation and the Bishop's Bible in 1568? The Protestant Reformation. The Geneva and bishops well established the phrase, the Ten Commandments, but the authorized version, better known as the King James Version, of 1611 theologically sealed the matter and they were to be called the Ten Commandments from then on. So does it really matter? Certainly the ten words of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 are imperatives, aren't they? Traditional Judaism lists them as part of the 613 mitzvot. So, what difference does it make if they are incorrectly translated into English? Beloved, there is a reason they went from being words to commandments, and it isn't out of reverence. For mitzvot. It is the opposite. The word devarim, words, carries with it the promise of liberty and life. After all, we are to live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of Hashem. Deuteronomy 3, Matthew 4, 4. To some, the word commandments bears the appropriate negative connotation there is a theological reason words became commandments. To be fair, some of the men of the Protestant Reformation considered these words as valid and operable in the lives of believers. Sadly, those same men were those that promoted the heretical theology called supersessionism, or replacement theology. The real force behind the denigrating of the ten words is to be found in dispensationalism. It is there that the ten words became a relic of a past dispensation, the dispensation of law. 
which, in the dispensationalist mind, is the antithesis to the dispensation of grace. It was not the name Ten Commandments that reduced these words of life to the law carved on stone in Christianity. It was the theology, whether supersessionist, as with Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Presbyterianism, or dispensationalism, as with Baptist, Pentecostalism, or Evangelicalism, and sadly some forms of Messianic Judaism. The theology aims to do the same thing in this regard, relegate the ten words to cold, hard tablets of stone. That is not what they are. They were delivered by the mouth of the Almighty King of the Universe to the ears of an entire nation at once. They came with sounds and sights that have never been experienced since. They were spoken audibly by the mouth of the Master of all worlds. We could see those words as if sparks. Hashem himself carved them onto tablets twice. Our tradition tells us that those tablets were miraculously carved in a way to be visible on both sides with the words suspended as if on air. Beloved, they are words of life. They are ten words. They are the summary of Hashem's self-revelation. Think about that for a moment. Everything that he said is found within these ten words, and the first of them is, I am Hashem your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Exodus 20 verse 2. This is his formal introduction to his bride. Never forget that. In response to the part of the rumination that talks about the reason the words went from being called words to commandments, instead of it being called the Ten Words, it's called the Ten Commandments. I wanted to share something from the Ramban on Shemot 20, verse 2. This is on page 480, if you have that volume. It says, Asher Hodzeticha Me'eretz Mitzrayim who is taking you out of the land of Egypt. It says, why does God identify himself here as the one who took the Israelites out of Mitzrayim, which is Egypt, rather than as the creator of the world? So the reason why this is important and why I wanted to share this, because this is what happens when you go from Aseret HaDibarot to the Ten Commandments, like you take away the meaning of the words and just start to call it by something different that wasn't the original intention. Because the fact that words were given to us, there's actually a passage in Hosea, the prophet, where he says, take words with you and return to Hashem. Well, notice it's words and not commandments that he takes. He's encouraging us to take. So in that light, when Hashem is giving us his words, he's not necessarily giving us commandments as much as he is what's behind those commandments. One of the big, big understandings and teachings about what's behind the mitzvot is the fact that, you know, there are people who do the commandments all the time, 
but their hearts are far from Hashem. And there are people whose hearts are so drawn to Hashem, but they know nothing about the commandments. So with that being the backdrop, Ramban goes on to say, God said, who has taken you out of the land of Mitzrayim? Because God's taking Yisrael out from there demonstrates his existence and that everything in the world depends on his will, which is chafetz. It says chafetz leman's um, the Torah is, is Hashem's desire is that the Torah be made great and glorious. And it's interesting because it's the, the chafetz, the desire, is uh, what's used here. And I just, I was just looking at the, uh, the letters, the chet, the peh, and the sadi, and trying to see if I uh, had any gematrias or anything. But uh, I just think when it comes to understanding what Hashem's will is, it's, it's really Hashem's great desire. You know, so everything in this world depends on Hashem's will. You know, when we have prayers, we want to ask that they would be according to God's will. Like when the Mashiach says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in Shemaim. And it goes on to say, because it was through God's knowledge and through his guidance that they came out from there. It also demonstrates the creation of the world from nothing which is a huge thing. The fact that there was all of this nothingness and then Hashem was like, okay, let's make something out of this. You know, usually when we want to create something that doesn't currently exist, we have to use something that already exists to make something that currently doesn't exist. Even though everything that we're using already exists, but that's not the case with Hashem. So again, with the fact that these are called the 10 words, words are very powerful. They seemingly come out of nowhere. And this is Hashem's, this is his great desire. Everything depends on this. So it says, for according to the doctrine of the eternalness of the world, nothing can ever change from its inherent nature. So, the supernatural miracles such as occurred during the Exodus would be impossible. It also demonstrates God's unbounded power to do as he pleases. And indeed, God's unbounded power in turn demonstrates his oneness. As God said, so that you shall know that there is none, which is ain, like Ain Sof, which is the infinite one. So there is none like me, which can be really read Ki Ain, like there is, there is infinite. There, there is no infinite like me. So Ki Ain Kamoni, there is no one infinite like me. There is nothing that's infinite like me. And all the world, which is Bekol Haaretz, 
And it says, this is the explanation of why God identifies himself here as the one who has taken you out. For the Israelites knew and were witness to all this. Now, the footnote says, God explains, or, or Ramban explains, God did, in effect, identify himself to the Israelites as the creator of the world, except that he did so using the events to which they were witness that demonstrated to them beyond all doubt. So when you remove the fact that these are called the 10 words, you're now creating doubt because anyone can give commandments, but can anyone give you their words that are testifying to who they are and what their abilities are? Because again, when you look at the fact that the creation of the world has a, a aspect of eternalness where nothing can change, but yet something changed. And the one who did this is the one who is speaking to us. And also when you look at how the Ten Commandments are called in English or outside of a Torah context, the first commandment is not found to be that it says, I am Hashem, your God, who is taking you out of the land of Mitzrayim. It starts after that. So usually if you have an English Bible, that's not the first commandment. But if you have a Tanakh, if you have a Torah, a Chumash, if you have the oral tradition, then you see that it starts there. It's all about Hashem removing us from the land of Mitzrayim. And this is why the Rambam also, the Ranban, Slika, brings down this statement constitutes a positive mitzvah. When God said, I am, by which he instructed and commanded the Israelites that they should know and believe that Hashem exists. So again, if you take away his words, don't focus on it being words, but focus on it being commandments. And not that he spoke them or anything like that. It's just, And also it's disconnecting it from the Exodus, disconnecting it from all of the miracles that we witnessed when we left Mitzrayim, to just say that these are commandments is a very, very uh, tragic thing. And this is one of the most beautiful things about being introduced to Torah and observing the mitzvot and being in a Jewish community and uh, having a teacher, really, you know, have a teacher that you can receive from and, and learn and grow uh, in the mitzvot, because it's so enriching, and Torah and mitzvot, an observant lifestyle, and all these things only add to it. Welcome to a new episode, a, a further addendum, on the theme from Rumination 17, Words of Life. And this time around, I'm reading from Fruits of the Orchard by Rabbi Abraham Arye Trugman, and this is his latest book, which can be obtained at orkadash.org. Parasha Yitro, the Song of the Torah. The giving of the ten words at Mount Sinai is the subject of the portion of Yitro. The ten words are essentially connected to a series of other sets of ten, ten utterances of creation, ten tests of Abraham, Ten nations Abraham will inherit, ten plagues, and ten archetypal songs sung throughout history, 
Each of these encompasses a full array of their respective realms in creation and human history. In turn, all the sets of ten are clearly interconnected with the ten sephirot, the basic blueprint of all existence, from the physical to the spiritual. The ten words are the quintessential kernel of all the mitzvot in the Torah. The idea can be seen in a beautiful mathematical gem. There are 613 uh, mitzvot in the Torah, as well as seven mitzvot enacted by the sages that have the same status as Torah-mandated mitzvot. Together, they equal 620, the exact number of letters in the ten words. Another version is that the universal mitzvot known as the seven mitzvot of the children of Noah added to the 613 mitzvot from the Torah equals 620. The numerical equivalent of the word keter, crown, also equals 620. In many synagogues around the world, the certain hanging, the curtain hanging before the ark where the Torah is kept is decorated with a crown as are many mantles around the Torah scroll itself. Additionally, many congregations put a silver crown on the Torah when it is taken out of the Ark. In Kabbalah, Keter, the highest of the Sephirot, represents the unconscious and superconscious source of intellect. This is also considered the source of music and song in the soul. Significantly, the Torah itself is called a song. After, regard, after God reveals through Moshe the blessing, curse, and prophecies concerning the future of the Jewish people, God teaches him the song Ha-Izinu, whose teachings are to be impressed upon all the people. And now write this song for yourselves and teach it to the children of Israel. Devarim 31.19 The oral tradition explains that this verse is commanding not only the song of Ha-Izinu, to be written down, but that each person is commanded to write the entire Torah. From this, we learn that all the Torah is considered to be a song. We are taught that there are four basic levels to learning Torah text. The acronym for these four strata is Pardes, which means orchard. Beginning from below to above, the P is for Peshat, the literal meaning. The R is for Remez, the hinted to or alluded to meaning. The D is for Drush, the homiletic or allegorical meaning. And S is for Sod, the secret or Kabbalistic meaning. There is an additional parallel structure to the four levels of learning called by another ac acronym, Tanto. These four levels are from above to below. The T is for Ta Amim, the musical notes denoting the way the Torah is chanted, the song of the Torah. The N is for Nekudot, the vowels. The T is for Tagin, the crowns upon certain of the letters. The O is for the Otiot, the letters. The musical notes are considered the highest level of understanding the song which reveals the deepest secrets of the letters themselves. It is written in the Talmud that one who sings their Torah will not forget it, learning in a joyous manner that fully integrates its teachings and wisdom into our hearts, our minds, is comparable to singing the Torah. 
Some individuals quite literally learn and teach Torah with a sing-song type of chant. This method has and still is used extensively when teaching young children. We must connect our learning to our most essential being and not treat it as just an intellectual pursuit or something to be done because it is expected of us, but having no real bearing on our daily lives in the present moment. Singing our Torah connects its teachings to our very essence and enables us to see that the Torah is playing its score within and around us all the time. The giving of the ten words at Mount Sinai was accompanied by a number of natural and metaphysical phenomena. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunder and lightning and a thick cloud upon the mountain and the sound of a shofar exceedingly loud. Exodus 19.16 Later it states, And all the people saw the sounds of the thunder and the lightning and the sound of the shofar and the mountain smoking. Exodus 20.15 Rashi comments that all the people were able to see that which is heard, something which cannot ordinarily happen. This phenomenon is called synesthesia, a state where the senses are able to cross each other and one of the senses can comprehend another sense in a new way. The ability of all the people to see the sounds of the shofar, which were not human produced, represents a heightened state of consciousness where the harmony of the spheres, the music of creation, is not only heard, but seen. As mentioned above, the ten utterances through which the world was created are essentially connected to the revelation of the ten words. One of the combinations of the letters of the first word of the Torah, Breshit, in the beginning, spells Shirat Av, the song of the Father, or the cardinal essential song. The letter Beit, the first letter of the Torah, has two possible pronunciations, Beit or Beit. The letters Av, Father, are the two initial letters of the Aleph Beit, the alphabet. Thus, another way of reading the above combination of letters would be the song of the Aleph Beit. These two combinations of letters of the opening word of the Torah reveal an awesome insight. The divine speech of our Father in heaven was, in fact, song, the song of the Aleph Beit, the Hebrew letters. The Creator, in effect, sang the world into existence. Just as the Almighty sang the world into existence, so too were the ten words revealed, as it were, through divine song. That is, the symbolism of the sound of the shofar growing exceedingly louder during the experience of receiving the Torah. It is as if the shofar acted as the background music for the ten words. The thread connecting the Creator and the Torah, His divine creative instrument with all of creation, is, in essence, music. The Almighty writes the, numer the musical score, the Torah, and gives it to us in order to perceive the divine symphony all around us. It is ultimately up to us whether we learn the notes, hear the music, and become partners with God in enriching the harmony, or go about our business deaf to the beautiful tapestry of the sound we call the universe. 
This is in response to the phrase, it was not the name Ten, Command, Ten Commandments that reduced these words to, of life to the law carved on stone in Christianity. It was the theology, whether supersessionist, as with Roman Catholicism, Lutheranism, and Presbyterianism. So that whole section, uh, if you go back to that, I wanted to uh, mention Matthew 24, verse 12, which is one of the accounts of the Basora. If you look at that verse, which in Ivrit is ve achare asher yirbe, which is, and afterwards that shall increase ha pasha, which is transgression. And transgression has to do with more of a uh, an intense rebellion. So let me uh, make sure that I cite this correctly. Go back to Pesha. From the Targum, it means a willful, rebellious sin, like to be an apostate. So what's really interesting about this is that because this rebelliousness, this apostasy, this falling away occurs, what does the rest of the verse say? The rest of the verse says, Tafug Ahavat Rabin, which means there shall be a great cooling off of love. There shall be a great cooling off, or there shall be a cooling off of great love. And love greatly cools off. Like if it's like these multiple ways to really look at it. And What's interesting, too, is when you look at this, you have this understanding that when you get more into a place of rebellion, when you get more into a place of detaching and disconnecting, uh, what you're actually doing is you're drawing your hand away from the mitzvot. You're drawing your hand away from that which demonstrates and expresses love. Because one of the things about observing the Torah whether it's through uh, reading it, studying it, uh, living it out, uh, being observant is what that's called, being from. When you think about all of that, that, that is what is known as Ahavat Hashem. This is why it says, Ve'ahavta et Hashem Eloheka, and you shall love the Lord your God. And so how do you love Hashem? You do the mitzvot. And you hearken to his words. This is why one of the other cool things Admor Yeshua says is that we live off of every word that comes from the mouth of the Father. It's all about the words. It's not necessarily the commandments because the whole passage there is actually from Duvarim where Hashem says he wanted to test us to see whether or not we would follow his mitzvah. But following his mitzvah would naturally be the result of the fact that we're in love with his words. And so again, when the 10 words were changed to the 10 commandments, it says this reduced the words of life 
to the law carved on stone. And what's crazy about it, too, is even in the rumination, it says the theology aims to do the same thing in this regard. Relegate the 10 words to cold, hard tablets of stone. Now, even if you wanted to go that route, the stone that the the words were carved into, it was all supernatural. Like there's a whole medrash about what was created on the sixth day of creation. And one of it was the script and the writing that would be eventually put onto the sapphire tablets. And the sapphire tablets were carved from Hashem's throne, which is where our souls come from. So these are literally like words written on a soul, you know, and what soul is this? And this is where uh, the uh, insight is from Rebbe Nachman, where the acronym of Anoki, it's like, I wrote myself down and gave it to you. I, I gave over my soul to you. And it's like Hashem carved out a piece of his heart, a piece of his soul and put his words into it. So this is another thing that happens that is forgotten as well, because there's a there's basically there's a whole disconnect from the tradition. Again, with the reorganizing and restructuring of what is commonly called the Old Testament, there's chapters, there's verses, uh, there's a, a re-delineating of what are actually the commandments as opposed to what did Hashem actually say in Shemot, you know, Parsha Yitro. All these things were taken away. And so it's definitely, again, it's it's showing the coldness. It's showing the fact that the warmth, the vibrancy, the life, the, the otherworldliness that Hashem spoke over to us, like that is completely missing. So anyway, I just wanted to share that <clears throat> from Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. And this is one of the things that is quickly seen in the world, but Bezrat Hashem, these days, as we're getting closer to the Mashiach's arrival, that we're seeing a big, big change. We want the the we want the kingdom to be established on the earth in a very, very powerful way. Not that we're all about miracles, but that's a part of it. Like when we left Mitzrayim, it took big, big things. It took world changing, world shifting events. And that was just for Egypt. But this time, which is known as the final redemption, this is the redemption to end all exiles. <clears throat> like there will be no more doubts after this. There will be no more exiles after this. So everything is going to be like to the nines. It's going to be over the top and just incredible. So these are the things that uh, Bezrat Hashem, we merit. Not that, again, we're not, we shouldn't be seeking after these things like, oh, I want to see you know, the oceans part. I want to see, you know, people flying on clouds and things like that. Well, people are already flying on clouds because we're already in in uh, airplanes and helicopters and some kind of uh, aircraft type scenario. So, I mean, what's the next step, right? <laughs> so anyway, um, and Hashem's technology is, is by the spirit. So it's not even anything that we can fathom. Like, we we think of we need these uh, mediums and all sorts of uh, supplies and materials, but Hashem can do all of that without any of that. So may our hearts 
be warmed up and may we move from its vote to words. Hello once again to a supplemental episode on Rumination 17. And on this part, I am reading from Orkaim, Torah Commentary, on the verse, Exodus 20, verse 1. Ve deber Elohim et kol ha deberim. God spoke all these statements to say. The Torah generally refers to Hashem by the four-letter name, translated Hashem. Orkayim cites a number of explanations as to why this verse, which introduces the giving of the Torah, uses the name Elohim, translated God. The verse's reason for mentioning the name Elohim in connection with the giving of the Torah is to inform us that the Torah was given by Hashem through both his attribute of strict justice and his attribute of mercy. Thus our verse states, God spoke using the name Elohim, which represents judgment, in order to teach us that the Torah was given through the attribute of strict justice. And the next verse states, I am Hashem using the four-letter name, which represents mercy, to teach us that it was given through the attribute of mercy. At this point, Orkayim offers a second approach that is of Kabbalistic nature and is beyond the scope of this work. In the Hebrew text, this approach appears in the paragraph beginning with Od Hadiyah and ending with Adonai Echad. Orkayim offers a third approach. The matter may be explained further in accordance with what Rav Katina said to an angel who rebuked him for neglecting the mitzvah of Zitzi. Menachot 41a. Do you of the heavenly court punish for failing to fulfill a mitzvah obligation? The angel responded that although there is no formal punishment for neglecting to fulfill a mitzvah obligation, at a time when there is an arousal of heavenly wrath, the heavenly court punishes even for such a matter. Until here is the antidote in the Gemara. We see from there that the Torah does not, under normal circumstances, prescribe punishment for failure to fulfill a mitzvah obligation. Hashem therefore stated here that this rule does not apply to the mitzvahs listed in the following passage. Rather, Hashem will mete out punishment for violating any of the matters listed in the Ten Commandments, even the positive commandments, namely the commandment of belief in Hashem, blessed be He, which is the most fundamental of all the mitzvahs, and which is listed at the beginning of Hashem's word, as stated in the next verse, I am Hashem your God. The commandment to remember the Shabbos day and the commandment to honor one's father and mother. Hashem informed the Jewish people that regarding these mitzvahs, although they are positive commandments, there is a God who judges in the land and who will punish those who do not fulfill them. This is why our verse states, God spoke using the name Elohim which represents the quality of strict justice, followed by all these statements to indicate that Hashem will mete out justice for failure to observe any of the commandments listed below, whether positive or negative. 
Orkain presents another explanation of the word all, coal. Another point the verse wants to tell us by stating all these statements is that Hashem has no desire for one who accepts the Torah unless he accepts the entire Torah. And whoever accepts upon himself to observe the entire Torah except for one mitzvah is considered as though he has not accepted any part of the Torah. Another explanation for our verse's use of the name Elohim and the word all. Another point the verse wants to teach us may be suggested based on what I wrote by way of introduction to Parashah Breshit that when Hashem speaks in his great might corresponding to the name Elohim he speaks wondrous things that the mouth of a human being is unable to utter that is he says numerous complete statements in one utterance as he did at the time of the creation of the world. Similarly, our verse states, God, Elohim, spoke all these statements in order to teach us that on the day of the giving of the Torah, Hashem spoke with great might, for he said all the statements in one utterance. This could be borne out in Gematria because, in a sense, that Exodus 20 verse 1 has seven words, identical in number to the first verse of the Torah, which also has seven words, and also 28 letters. Orkain goes on to discuss the last word in our verse, Lemor. As for that which it states, the term Lemor to say, this may be explained by first noting a question that arises with regard to the wording of the ten words. Why did the Torah use a different wording from one commandment to the next? That is, it begins by speaking in the following manner. I am Hashem your God who has taken you out. There shall not be to you other gods in my presence. These verses are written in the first person indicating that it is Hashem speaking with regard to himself. May his name be blessed. However, afterward, the verse deviates from the, its earlier method and speaks in a different manner. Verses 7 through 11. You shall not take the name of Hashem your God for falsehood, for Hashem will not absolve anyone who takes his name for falsehood. But the seventh day is Shabbos to Hashem your God. For six days Hashem made the heavens and the earth, etc. These verses refer to Hashem in the third person. It would seem that the Torah should have continued and concluded in the same way it began, by speaking in the first person, as follows, You shall not take my name for falsehood, for I will not absolve anyone who takes my name for falsehood. For in six days I made the heavens and the earth, etc. This would seem also to speak to those who, in certain theological circles, who think that the Torah is done away with and that Yeshua abolished it. But we would be well reminded in Matthew five seventeen through 19 that he clearly states, and it is explicit on our Master's part, that I am not come to abolish the Torah, but rather I am come to fulfill 
and the word fulfill is often also misrepresented or misunderstood. It simply means that he came to live in complete obedience to the Torah, to the will of the Father. For he said in John 5.39, I am come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, him you will receive. And this commentary would seem to allude to that in that respect. Someone else who comes in falsehood, misrepresenting the name of Hashem, the, the consequences can only imagine would be dire for such an individual. He may never truly understand what it means to fulfill the will of the person who sent him. For as Rashi comments on Bamidbar 12 verse 8, the servant of the king is the king. And it would would behoove us to remember that we do represent the king who reigns over kings, the Holy One, blessed be he. And this reply is to the part of the rumination where it talks about supersessionism and replacement theology. One of the thoughts that that brought to me was, could this be a mercy of Hashem for those far away to repent? And the reason why I thought of it that way, because it's an opportunity for people to draw closer. If you think about the second blessing of the Shemoni Esrei, where it talks about Hashem supporting the falling and uh, raising the dead and healing the sick. Like these are things that are very, very just like, how, how can this be? How can someone so far away from Hashem be brought close? And also in the Ashrei, which is uh, Tehillim 145, Psalm 145, we recite this um, at least three times a day, if possible, two times during Shacharit and one time during um, Mincha. So I'm going to pull up Bezrat Hashem, this commentary real quick, because it says, why, why is there not, because if you look at the acrostic, if you look next to each verse, there's all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet except the noon. Why is the noon missing? Because it says, Hashem supports all the fallen ones, which is the nofleen. So when you look at the fact that Hashem is the one who is supporting the nofleen, like, that that's another aspect uh, here that I'm basically commenting on. So when you go to the second blessing of the Shemoni Esrei, which is known as God's might, the Gevarot, the commentary says, Umatsmiak Yeshua, and make salvation sprout. Good deeds are like seeds that are planted in, in produce crops. Which, by the way, if you think about uh, a passage from Corinthians that Shaul HaShliach writes, when he talks about the resurrection, which this bracha is connected to, it talks about basically planting and seeds and produce and all those kinds of things. Like we sprout forth from the earth, which is the same thing we've done before. Like when we were in the in the garden, like before we before the garden, Hashem brought us all together, he brought all the soils from the four corners of the earth and placed it together on the temple mount, fashioned us and formed us and then raised us up. 
So like we literally sprouted forth from the earth originally. So continuing, it says people can merit revivification, which is the resurrection because of the good their children do or through beneficial outcomes of undertakings they initiated in their lifetimes. And that's from the Siak Yitzak. Also, it says Mechaye Metin, which is the revivifier of the dead. The, the concept that God restores life is found three times in this section, alluding to the three kinds of revivification, which is one of them, man's awakening every morning after a death-like slumber. Because basically when we go to sleep, it's one sixtieth of death. So Bezrat Hashem waking up in the morning that is likened to an aspect of resurrection. So resurrection is being shown to us in part. Like in case you don't think resurrection exists or it is a thing, uh, look at how you basically go into a death-like state every night when you go to sleep. And then when you are awakened, when you rise up, that's like a resurrection. This is why another thing that Shaul Hashliak writes about is those who have fallen asleep. Like death is likened to sleep. So continuing on, it says the rain that has the life-sustaining quality of causing vegetation to grow. That's also a form of resurrection. So the fact that we plant seeds, it rains, and then things grow out of the earth. And this is the allegory or the analogy that's given for how our bodies will come forth from the earth and then it goes on to say and the literal revivification of the dead that will take place in the messianic age and that's from the abu draham and so in this prayer we say who is like you O master of mighty deeds, and who is comparable to you, who causes death and restores life and makes salvation sprout. Also, it says you support the fallen. I'm going back a little bit. It says you support the fallen. And so just thinking about, again, those who may be far away, the fact that there is something known as supersessionism and things like that, how could that be a grace of Hashem? The fact that when you look at there's all of this corruption, there's all this, uh, it, as it says in the rumination, denigrating of the 10 words to be found in dispensationalism. It is there that the 10 words became a relic of a past dispensation, the dispensation of law, which dispensationalist minds, it which in their mind is the antithesis of the dispensation of grace so in other words like get grace out of here like move it all away this is a horrible place to be and the fact that you know there's this huge margin of error that's now being portrayed people who had no idea what truth are you know are also far out and that margin has reached over even to them and so it's not that this is a good thing but it's also one of the things that when such tragedies happen in the world, those horrible events can reach and touch into places that would never would have been touched otherwise. And again, there's um, environmental catastrophes, there are 
social catastrophes. There's all sorts of things that can happen. And sometimes it takes tragedy to actually wake people up and, and pull their pull their hearts up and pull their souls up from the mire. And um, and again, chasve chalila, that that is the MO, because like we don't need that. We we should understand we're such in a bad place right now, like that we need to continue to do all the good we can to pull ourselves up because the world is changing. The world is shifting so much. The The people who are actually making a positive impact in this world and who are doing their best and giving it all they got day in and day out, it's, it is making an impact. So I don't want to speak from a place of like, oh, we have no hope and it's so dark because really lights are coming on. And it's our job to see that and to add to it, you know? And so there's a lot of light within each neshama that has been sent down to this world. And we just need to open it up. And one of the ways it can be opened up is by those who are so far away from truth now having it within their reach because there's been such a catastrophe, such chaos. And now that that chaos is spread so far, now people who really need it and really want it, you know, they can now grab a hold of it. So I I know it seems kind of uh, crazy and left field, but that's just something that just kind of came to my heart because I just, and I don't want to say it came to my heart like in a uh, a squishy way, but just in a in a thought of where are the people who just feel so hopeless, you know? And because again, things have just gotten so out of hand, and like where are the where are the boundaries? Where are the borders? Where's the standards? Where's the truth? You know, why is it absent? Why? Why is there such corruption? And it's just like people who've been in that state can now, you know, link arms with people who are now in the state of like, I can't believe this is reality. And it's as if there are people who've been in that reality going, uh, yeah, been here, been on this, like, where have you been? You know, and you're like, oh, well, actually, there are standards. And they're like, oh, yeah, really? Where are they? You know, and here we are on the rumination sharing it so anyway Bezrat Hashem we will see the arrival of Mashiach we will see the the standards and all of the the proper boundaries and the proper um proper everything we'll see it all repaired and tacooned and we'll play our part in that because we do need to be making sure that wherever we can affect that we're doing that like we need to be Mashiach we need to be the people who make the repairs who show forth those proper standards who show forth the organization of the chaos so can you hear our own? may it be so welcome to another episode of ruminations from Pardes in this episode I'll be dealing with the mystical nature of the Ten Words. And I'll be reading from the source, a Torah commentary written by Isaiah Horowitz in the 15th century, Shnei Lukot Habrit. It is a three-volume set, and I'm reading from the second volume, beginning on page 491. 
I shall now attempt to convey some of the mystical dimensions of the Ten Commandments, five of which address themselves to our Maker, and five to the well-being of our fellow man. We are already well aware that the, that the entire Torah consists of permutations of the name of God, permutations which extend endlessly in all directions of the universe. The four-lettered, ineffable name, uh, yod Hey, vav Hey, is the name which symbolizes God's essence. All other names are somehow derived from this four-letter name. These various kinoim uh, pseudonyms of God's names in turn derive from the names that are subordinate to the four-letter name. There is not a word or letter in the Torah which does not in some form allude to a kanui, and therefore indirectly to the name of God, and which in turn links up with the four-lettered ineffable name. This means that Torah Adonai Tamima, that the Torah of God is whole, complete, and in all its aspects, somehow lead back to the ineffable name. Keeping this in mind, it is easy to understand that the Ten Commandments contain within them the whole Torah in capsule form. The Ten Commandments consist of 620 letters corresponding to Keter Torah, the crown of Torah. 613 of these letters represent the 613 commandments of the Torah that are addressed to this Jewish people, whereas the other seven letters represent the seven Noahide laws addressed to all of mankind. It is fairly obvious, then, that the Ten Commandments, more than any other part of the Torah, contain the mystical dimension of the ineffable name, the shape and size of the tablets on which the ten words were engraved allude to the letters of the ineffable name. The number ten corresponds to the letter Yud of that name. The five commandments engraved on either one of the tablets correspond to the two letters Hey of the ineffable name. The letter Vav is represented by the height, width, and thickness of the tablets, i.e. six tefakim handbreadths each. When we cube the dimensions of the tablets, six by six by six, we obtain 216 cubit tefakim. This number equals the mystical dimension of the ineffable name when we spell the letters as words, using the method involving the letter Yud. This is how it appears. Yud, Vav, Dalet, 20, plus... Hey Yud 15 plus Vav Yud Vav 22 plus Hey Yud equals 15. The total you obtain is 72. Viewing, the, viewing this number in the three dimensions of the tablets, you arrive at 3 times 72, 216. The number corresponds to the number of letters. 3 times 72 in each verse. And the three successive verses in Exodus 14, 19, 
verses 19, 20, and 21, describing the interposition of God's angel between the camp of the Israelites and that of the Egyptians. The author of Ginat Egoz comments that the ineffable name, spelled in letters, amounts to 26, and that this number equals the numerical value of the 10 words. And in brackets, no explanation is offered as to how that number is arrived at. The author adds that there are 620 letters in the 10 words corresponding to the numerical value of the word keter, crown. In order to understand this calculation, you must realize that the 10 words are the mystical dimension of the ineffable name in the way it is written and in the way it is read. That is what God meant when he told Zeshami Veze Zikri Vehe Adonai Behekal God Show. This is my name, and this is the way I wish it to be mentioned. The additional quote may demonstrate that in his own abode, God is referred to by a different name than when in communication with man. This refers to the written spelling of God's name, the name Adonai. It's God's name as it is pronounced when we read it. Between the two spellings, we have the mystery of the relationship between God and Knesset Yisrael, the spiritual equivalent of the people of Israel. The soul of Israel, which is called Adam, corresponds to the emanation Malkut, which represents the name Adonai the secret of the union with the emanation Tiferet, the emanation which produces the souls, Neshamot. We know that Malkut is the source of Israel from the verse, Bameh Kahalot Barku Elohim Adonai Membakor Yisrael. In assemblies, bless God, the Lord, who you who are the fountain of Israel. Psalm 68.27 in view of the above, it is justified that the first five of the ten words speak of the name of God, as it is spelled, yod heh vav -Heh. Whereas the last five commandments speak of that name, as it is read, Adonai, the source of Israel, seeing that these five words regulate conduct between Jews and Jews, all is one at the very core of things. All leads back to the ineffable name. This is in line with what I have copied from the writings of Nachmanides, where he stated that the dual nature of the tablets, i.e. two tablets instead of one, symbolizes heaven and earth, groom and bride. All is based on the mystical dimension of the ineffable name spelled as either Yodke Vavke or Adonai, Aleph, Dalet, Nun, Yud. This brings a, a, a deeper understanding of why these are words of life. Because of the ineffable name, it brings life. As it is uh, written in Psalm 19, verse 8, the Torah of Adonai is perfect, restoring the soul. And I'm quoting the CJB, the complete Jewish Bible on that verse. On Exodus 19.20, Nachmanides writes as follows, If you take a close look at this chapter, you will understand that God 
descended on Mount Sinai in his capacity as the ineffable name and resided there in fire. Whenever God is mentioned as speaking with Moshe throughout this chapter, he did so as the attribute of yod heh vav i.e. he used the ineffable name as his means of communication. God elevated Moshe and brought him towards a level of great honor and warned the people that the people should not overstep their bounds or they would cause themselves grave harm. Exodus 19.20-21 The writer of Hebrews mentions this aspect of the giving of the Torah and I believe that is in chapter 10 of the letter to the Hebrews. The warning pertained to efforts to secure visions of God in his capacity as the ineffable name, something that even Etzeli B'nai Israel, the nobility of the children of Israel, mentioned as having a vision of God in Exodus 24, 10-11, did not see. However, all of Israel heard the voice of God out of the fire. Thus far, Nachmanides. God informed the Israelites of the fact that his ineffable name represents his essence. They heard his voice via Hekolo, his sanctuary, which is a description of the name Adonai, God's sanctuary or palace. In this case, the fire on Mount Sinai must be perceived of as a shell, which protects the listener or viewer from being burned by God's essence. This name, or fire, H dot, is maintained by performance of the 613 mitzvot on Israel's part. This is what God alluded to when he said, Zay Shami Vezay Zikri. The Zohar has already pointed out that when you pair the word Shami with half the ineffable name, you attain the number 365 i.e. the number of negative mitzvot in the Torah. Whereas when you pair the word Zakri with the other half of the ineffable name, Vav, Hey, you obtain the number 248, the number of positive commandments in the Torah. In order to emphasize the division we have outlined further, the Torah in Deuteronomy 4.36 describes the episode of the revelation on Mount Sinai in the following words. Min Hashemayim, Cheshemaecha et Kolo, Ve'al Haaretz, Ha'raecha et Shamo. From the heaven he let you hear, etc. On earth he showed you his fire. It is also written that our God is also a consuming fire. But again, this is the kind of fire that brings life. It brings energy. It brings spiritual sustenance to the, to the hearers, to the seers at this most unique event, which there is none like it, and there never will be again. This is probably the only exception of um, Ecclesiastes 1.9, what has been will always be. Events described in this manner by Isaiah Horowitz demonstrate to us that the giving of the Torah is unlike any other event in recorded human history. The revelation of the divine from a place that is beyond our comprehension as finite beings.
that were created in his image, and yet we can still have a sense of the divine when we perform the mitzvot of the Torah because it is our connection, it is our life, and it is so important to be mindful of this. And this is something that the Jewish people have preserved for 3,500 years in holiness and in sincerity.